0: Assalamu alaykum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq al and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, if you are just tuning in for the first time, you need to stay connected. Don't make this your last time. So find us on social media, follow and like our pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, so subscribe, subscribe, rate, and review. We're on Google Play or Google Podcast. Uh, Where else are we? We're on SoundCloud, of course. And tune in. So look for us at Radio Islam USA. All right, family. We've got a, uh, I think, a really timely conversation because this is one of those conversations I'm thinking that at the end of it, you will be thinking... Wow, I think they had me. They had me fooled. I wasn't seeing the the big picture, right? So uh, we have with us in studio, we have Jamie Merchant. Uh, He is the media director of the Center for Progressive Strategy and Research, as well as the media director for Justice for All. And he wrote a piece that appeared in The Baffler. Uh, It's online, uh, The Baffler. And it's titled, The Effects of Automation on Manufacturing Jobs, Trades and Unions, Why Economic Nationalism is a Dead End for the Labor Movement. This is something I find very, very important as a member of a, a union myself. Uh, so we're going to get into it. And we welcome Jamie to Radio Islam. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Yes. So this is a, this is a, huge, a huge topic. And I mentioned that I, I think I'm hoping that by the end of the conversation, people will think about this in a, in a, in a different way. Uh, when we talk about nationalism and, and now it has, it has taken on a much different uh, tone. We've really taken, uh, I think we've taken some steps back now uh, with the way it's been injected yeah. into the um, public um, uh, lexicon. So what was the, what was the main point before we get into specific, uh, specifics? What was the main point that you were looking to really pull out of this uh, topic for readers? Sure. So
1: I think the idea of economic nationalism, just really briefly, is that the wealth created within the confines of a particular country should remain within the limits of that country and should belong solely to the citizens of that country. And you find a lot of support for this idea, obviously, amongst the the Trumpist crowd with all the America First. Discourse and the the whole Steve Bannon philosophy about what we should be doing to reform the American economy to make it more manufacturing based and to confront China and to to take all these very uh, this more kind of militant posture in our in our trade policy globally, but it's also pretty popular on the left side of the political spectrum as well. You're you're beginning to see support for. Ideas that – from people who would call themselves social democrats or, um, or left liberals or, or what have you for ideas that we need to – or proposals for doubling down on, on borders and on, on a more nationally focused economic policy that's going to basically – to privilege the citizenry over the elite. And that sounds good to a lot of people who are concerned about social justice right mm-hmm. and are concerned about these issues because that 's what that 's what we 're against but it's it, it comes with a lot of problems, right. and so that was the main idea I think of this piece is to try, try to draw out the stuff that I, I thought people more on our side of the fence were, were kind of missing about this idea
0: now when you say um, this idea that the the profits or the wealth. Uh, that is produced by a nation that it belongs to the citizenry of that nation. Uh that it it kinda that is in contradiction to this idea, this uh this theory of interdependence mm-hmm. uh in a sense of our mutual uh gain where we're tied together, right? So if one fails and, and we saw evidence of that um uh some not too long ago, uh, with mm-hmm. the crisis, uh, uh, financial crisis in, in Greece, mm-hmm. um, but and how mm-hmm. that had a ripple effect, you know, uh, internationally.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So, when we have these types of um, the, these types of sentiments that are being shared, do you think this is coming from people who understand that we have moved beyond? Uh, the, the physical border, regardless regardless of protecting our mm-hmm. physical borders or not, we've moved beyond a point where we can um we can manage or we can determine our our health and, and well being financially mm-hmm. just off of the uh, the efforts and the, the, the riches that are produced in our own country.
1: Right. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of attention to to this to the suggestion that you're making from people who support this idea it's it's a it's a common assumption and i agree with what you're saying that historically we're at this point where we are a global society that you know we've heard these stories about globalization for decades now and there's there's a measure of truth a lot of it has been exaggerated but there's a very large dose of truth in what everyone has this narrative about globalization and about the deepening interconnections between people and cultures and communities around the world economically and, and culturally and so on. And I think that, I, I mean, I, I fundamentally agree with you that we're, it's not realistic to think that we can revert back to this this really like a kind of, frankly, nineteen late 1940s, 50s idea of what we want this country to be, but even still... There will people who will say, well, look, the United States, for example, is an incredibly rich country that's endowed with immeasurable bounties of natural resources. We're energy independent now, and so on. We have the strongest financial institutions in the world. And so on the basis of these kinds of reasons, they will try to argue that we can, we can go it alone. And regardless of what happens to people who maybe are dependent on us, we we don't really need to get involved with their affairs. We leave them into their own. We leave them on their own affairs to take care of those affairs on their own, separate from us. And we'll, we'll we'll just handle our stuff over here. And that's that's kind of the case that they that the proponents of this idea of economic nationalism try to make is that we can actually do this, and that you know globalization is like the big lie. That we've been sold over the last few decades,
0: yeah, and I think that's, that's a really important point that a lot of people feel like global, globalization has not really panned out without oh, yeah. without really looking at um, matters are judged by intention, right? Mm-hmm. It's the intent behind what has happened under this banner of globalization. So that being said, there is uh, you talk a bit about uh, class warfare. Mm-hmm. And, and and this class consciousness. Now there's there is a, a, a dichotomy that's present here, in that with modernity, with with globalization, particularly with mass media, it has allowed us to become closer, uh, just as as a mm-hmm. international community. But when it comes to the means of production, when it mm-hmm. comes to the wealth, those who actually control wealth, that still remains, as, as you uh, you articulate in your piece says uh, 8.6% of the the people control 86% of the wealth. And those numbers are intended, you know, they're they're expected to continue to move forward. So uh, that being the case, how, how do we uh, talk, talk a bit more about this, this, this class warfare that's uh, really an essential part of labor that is starting to be erased Mm -hmm. when we, um when we make those outside of our own borders into yeah. a monolith yeah
1: well the working class is global mm-hmm. right we when you look when you when you look at the economic statistics like the ones you just cited where 86% of the wealth is controlled by 8.6% of people and then another striking statistic that that I saw recently was that by 2030 you know, um, two-thirds of the world's wealth is going to be controlled by 1% of the world's population. That's a global statistic. Mm. And when you look at those kinds of statistics at at the world scale, you have to be thinking also about what's – where is that wealth coming from on the world scale, you know, and who's benefiting from it. Right. And what economic nationalism wants us to do is to see – to, to see, to find common cause with the particular elites in our country, mm-hmm. and to take sides with them over working people in other countries and other parts of the world, um, and in order to have this nation versus nation competition, right, rather than seeing our our struggles and and our campaigns as working as workers as working people um, in common with workers in in other countries and other parts of the world with whom we have much more in common than with the global 1%. Right. And so that's really the big gamble is that if they can sell us this if they can sell us their big lie that we have more in common with the 0.01% in the United States than we do for example with um you know with factory workers in Shenzhen China. Mm-hmm. And that's really that's that's like the the watershed kind of issue for the for the class warfare um, topic that you
0: mentioned, I think. Uh, you know, I also find it interesting that media. I guess we could say that media, uh, large scale, mm-hmm. uh, that it will be controlled by those people that we consider to be elites, uh, and as such, when it comes to um, this effort to paint other other countries, whether it's just China, India, uh, Pakistan, you know, Russia, whoever it is. Uh, But this effort to paint them, as I said, as a monolith, Mm -hmm. that it in large part is, is due, is due to this um, the lack of nuance when it comes to covering them. Can you talk a bit about um, uh, this, uh, about that, about this phenomenon? And because I think at one point in history, there was a lot, even even without the internet, right? There was there was a lot more connectedness among labor globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that we have this ability to to know what's going on uh, mm-hmm. around the world, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like th- that's not the case.
1: Yes, that's quite a paradox, right? That now, <laughs> now yeah. that we have <laughs> we have this immense and like unprecedented communication technology, somehow our communication is is suffering <laughs> in this profound way um yeah if you just listen to any speech for instance donald trump gives on on trade policy it's going to be mentioning it's going to mention china and it's going to be china 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 right <laughs> and how china is ripping us off and china's screwing us over and they've been killing us for you know a decade now and they're they're taking all of our jobs and all of that whole script mm-hmm. It's this, yeah, this drive to reduce this extraordinarily complex and class stratified society into just one monolithic, you know, uh, basically just abstraction. Yeah. That you know lumps the lumps ordinary people and and working people in with the you know the party elites at the very tip top of the society, mm-hmm. and and just says they're all just this 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 mass, this undefinable mass that is trying to you know. Basically, take America down, take away our take away our our prosperity and our freedom and and all the rest of it. And that's just something we really have to be on 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 the guard about and be and be on the lookout for. Because even among trade union leaders and and people on the left, you will find this uh, this tendency to to villainize China as a whole. Right. right and how we have to get tough on China and how we have to fight to bring our jobs back and we have to take a tougher stance. And so you have, you know, uh, card-carrying unionists voting for Trump and, and so on. You know this story, mm-hmm. and among others. So we just have to it, – it's just a it, – you know, it's another illusion that we have to be really critical about and uh, going forward just to, to try to call
0: it as we see it. Now, you talk about uh, – you, you mentioned – the loss of jobs, uh, particularly in manufa- manufacturing, that is directly related, not necessarily to um, trade policy, but just to the rise in automation itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that to be particularly interesting because when we, when we well, we do know that there's also another uh, element of that, and that is um, that 8.6 percent. Right, this minority of of the the populace, whose decisions impacts everybody else, uh, they make decisions where they decide to take jobs from one area, where labor has worked and it has ingrained itself in society and and made uh you know made strides for for itself, mm-hmm. um, and they take those jobs and they put them in places where the labor uh, where folks are not as savvy. They're not. Basically, they're they're in a, a, a sense a state of desperation, yep. and they and and you find them eventually growing to that point, um, you know where where they you know they advocate for themselves so they you know they yep. they stand up. Um, why is it? I shouldn't say why is it, but can you talk a bit about what maybe some of our listeners probably are not aware of that there are strikes that are taking place in In China, there are strikes that are taking place in, in places that we we may not think of uh as I said we may not think of them in nuanced ways mm-hmm. uh, where that class distinction is there mm-hmm. uh, Can you talk a bit about that
1: of course, yeah i mean there every day there are there are very big strikes happening in other parts of the the global you know manufacturing economy in I mean, South Korea has been an enormous hotbed of labor militancy over the last seven or eight years. Mm. China is going itself is going through a period of deindustrialization, which a lot of American workers might be surprised to hear, <laughs> given how much we hear about it, you know, for, in our own country. But um, Chinese factory workers, manufacturing workers, are facing the same challenges that. Um, You know, unionized workers here in this country have been facing for decades around deindustrialization and offshoring and uh, manufacturing capacity moving to countries, new countries like Cambodia, Vietnam, you know, regional areas where um, as processes are automated in uh, these various manufacturing regions of China, the, um, you know, some companies who maybe can't compete in in that sector anymore will go to find cheaper labor. In other in other uh, in other markets, and so they're fighting the same things that we've been fighting for a, quite a long time now, and it would just it, it's it's in our interests to 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 recognize that and to to begin just taking it into into account when we're when we're thinking about what should our what should our stance as um, as people who are interested in a, in a you know an economic vision of like a a just and humane future. Um, it shouldn't just be confined just to our immediate environs, but it should also just kind of logically it should flow to people who are facing the, you know, almost the exact same circumstances that we are economically in mm-hmm. other parts of the world because we have so much in common in terms of our our, our interests and our foes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, that's what I'd say about that.
0: You know, and it's not often when we think about humanitarian crisis or we think about humanitarian uh, norms we don't always couple that with, um, with, uh, with labor. We don't think about labor practices as being a part or an extension of that. And uh, you, you talked about something, well, I, I won't jump directly into that, but I'll, I'll ask this. Uh, you says that the way forward lies with a rejuvenated international labor movement, movement, which I see really bringing those two things together. Can you expound a bit on this?
1: Yeah, so that, I mean, th- that's obviously like the big kahuna, right, yeah. of, what, of, what we're, of what we're after. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's perhaps easier to, to say than to certainly to do, but even to, to imagine. And so part of what this piece was trying to do was to begin, and I'm not the only one obviously talking about this. Others are as well in really important ways. But mm-hmm. to begin trying to put the pieces together of like, okay, practically speaking, you know, concretely, how can we start? to To act in a way that could bring something like a global workers' movement into existence, and there's, I mean, there's there's a lot we could say about that. But um, my concern in this piece was to address, you know, people who are involved in the labor movement here in this country, and are in our, are internationally conscious or maybe internationally curious, <laughs> and are trying to think about ways to. Um, forge new kind of bonds of solidarity with, uh, you know, our working brothers and sisters uh, in other parts of the world. And so, you know, we can – just a couple of the examples that I discuss in the piece. One is um, we can – you know, we can capitalize on the growing popularity of these big, bold kind of – social democratic programs like single-payer health care mm-hmm. and uh, universal public education and even like something like the Green New Deal, which is being discussed. Um, these really popular programs th- that a lot of people support, we can begin to fold into that, this this this, this platform, uh, an idea of global, you know, labor, of labor justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and how we, for example, in the United States, what we can do um, at the legislative and policy level and at the civil society level to try to advance a project like that. So in terms of kind of just grassroots uh, organizational work, we, we can be reaching out to, to comrades in other parts of the world online. That is one good thing the Internet gives us, yeah, right, is that we absolutely. can actually leverage that that connectivity to uh, to make connections with with activists in other parts of the world, we can even use things like Google Translate, you know, and the automated <laughs> translation services to communicate where we couldn't before, maybe. Yeah. And if we don't have the, you know, the the um the luxury of being able to communicate directly in in a particular language, so there are ways even to get past the language barrier, right? Mm-hmm. And then recently, some uh, some friends of mine put together just as another example, a book, a speaking tour for some um, for some. Uh, some some workers in uh, some, some workers and organizers activists from China who came through had, who and in, in, uh, had written a book okay. about um, actually it's a very good book it's called striking to survive I highly recommend it okay. um, about basically the the evolution of the uh, the labor movement in um, in China over the last in like the coastal the southern coastal port areas over the last uh, 10 years or so mm. and that's just another way of raising raising consciousness raising awareness right you're having these organizers uh, come through, talk about their experience from another part of the world, share it with people here, allow them to kind of begin to, to, to come together that way. And then um, legislatively and in terms of like specific policies, there's this particular there, – there are a lot of ideas here too. Uh, we could talk about how to build um, stronger labor enforcement rights into, for instance, global trade agreements. Uh, how to tilt those away from the empowerment of um, corporations, which is basically what they do now, that's how they function, mm-hmm. into uh, vehicles that would actually give labor a leg up in organizing in these different countries.
0: Now, you mentioned also uh, in this piece uh, workers' power agreement, which you liken to the uh, Paris Accord, Paris climate deal. And
1: or the Roosevelt Institute compared it to the Paris.
0: OK, All yeah, right. yeah. but I bet I suggest, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So um, and I think this is an extremely uh, important step. Right. If, if there's going to be global solidarity, it has to be something that is recognized by the governmental uh, entities. All right. So you also mentioned that in, in the uh, in the piece uh, you talk about uh, a workers power agreement. Uh, which is likened to the Paris climate deal and uh, which which forces uh, which it forces not just the. Um, well, I guess each each government, right, each each nation would have to would have to look at this and then uh, force or require, you know, it, it's, its corporate citizens to adhere to a a, a specific and outlined uh, code of conduct. You know what's what's right. going to be expected. I think that that is huge. So, tell us a bit more about because this is the first time I'd I read anything about a workers' power agreement.
1: Yeah, the basic idea is that we we take the model of something like the the climate accord agreements uh, that have been. Being, you know, that are being uh, that have convened and been agreed to with varying levels of success over the last uh, fifteen or twenty years, the like, you know the Kyoto Agreement and then recently the Paris Accords just a couple years ago, mm-hmm. where you have a multilateral uh, consensus more or less between a lot of different actors or national actors to to abide by certain rules and regulations and, and constraints, and adopt that as a kind of new system. For regulating, right the, for example, the emissions targets for climate reform. Right. So the idea is that that can function as a kind of analog. We can use that as an analogy to think about well, how could we, how could we develop a similar kind of summit that would that would get potentially agreement from a lot of different uh, from a lot of different countries, a lot of different players to. Look to be on the same page when it comes to uh, labor rights instead of uh, instead of instead of the climate, um, or you know obvi- like ideally in addition to the climate right and it, it, that it's, it's it is a very very promising idea because it''s it's, a, it's concrete and tangible and it allows us to think it gives us a precedent to draw on from the past and to think about how we could extend it to to labor rights to maybe begin to forge this international class consciousness. Uh, but then as you i know are well aware the 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 paris agreement the kyoto agreement have a lot of problems a lot of faults and one of which is how do you make these things binding right how do you right. enforce them that's the big thing that's the big thing and so <clears throat> we would have to get serious about and that's this is always the the rub in these kinds of things what what can enforcement look like what how can we make these agreements binding you know how can we compel countries and and other leaders to recognize them and and their institutions to follow them. And so that's when you start to get into the question of enforcement. And that's a lot of there's a lot to say about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, and and many people who um, we take for granted, right, those, you know, who who work, uh, take for granted the 40 hour work week, take for granted um, for those who are in uh, manufacturing or building trades, um, organizations like OSHA, Absolutely, you know, yeah. safety uh, requirements and inspections, um, child labor laws—these are all things that were brought about by the labor movement. And what I find, uh, what, what I find interesting, what I find uh, to be extremely important, is is realizing that a lot of the gains that have been made by labor have have been rolled back. Uh, yeah. and, and so thinking globally, the idea of having a a, a standard, a global standard for workers, um, to me, I think that is the most uh, most important thing and the most powerful thing that could be done to ensure that uh, the, the corporate citizens don't just keep moving the cheese. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, they just yeah. pick up, <laughs> they shut down manufacturing yeah. in one place and then they set up and they move of course. You know, across a border and and their profit line goes up, but all those things that have been fought for when it comes to safety and wages and, and just humane treatment on a job, those things are out the door. Yeah. So it makes it makes absolute sense for for this type of type of effort to take place. But Let's 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 not be too rosy. Let's go back and look at what are some of the things. Because you, you mentioned it, uh, nationalism, economic nationalism, right? Because if yeah. you if you are a proponent of e- proponent of economic nationalism, then that's kind of the, your your doorway yeah. into o- other aspects of it as well. Uh, you talked about the enemy without becomes the enemy within. Yeah. And I thought that was a really, really uh, important point to look at. Um, can, can you explain to, the, to our listeners what what you uh, got into in there?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I do think this is one of the most important points maybe that, that I tried to make. And so when you begin to think in, in nationalistic terms, you're immediately thinking of who's in and who's out, who's included, who's excluded, who is, who's a citizen, who's not a citizen, and you begin to see all issues through those through that lens. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're if you're thinking in these terms, and you're looking at uh, Chinese workers, for example, as your competitors, right, your economic competitors, you're also going to be looking at immigrants trying to find a better life and get into this country as your competitors, for for example, mm-hmm. right. You're going to begin to see un, uh, undocumented people um, as, as 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 undesirable simply because they are potentially uh, going to be taking up space in the labor market, right? And that, as a as a nationalist, the the wealth of the country should belong to you as a citizen, right? Mm-hmm. And so it just it it constricts our imagination in this really uh, poisonous way. And that's what I meant when I said that the enemy without becomes the enemy within. Because as soon as you begin thinking in this this really rigidly confined, bordered way in this nationalistic frame, you're immediately thinking about competitors, not just outside but also inside. And those competitors can be undocumented people. They can be people of color. They can be. It's that's the scary thing about that about that category. It can it can begin to ripple outward, and it can turn into something like white nationalism. Very quickly, yeah. I mean, I, I try to make the argument that it's basically white nationalism from the start, economic. Whenever you yeah. hear people saying this, it's like it's mm-hmm. inevitable; it's going to lead in that direction. Some people don't accept that, mm-hmm. but um, my, yeah, but my point is that you're you're once you're kind of going to let that genie out of the bottle of national borders, and you're going to double down on that, it can get dicey real quick.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you that if white nationalism is your is your base, then everything that every sector that it touches is going to um it, it's going to facilitate its, its its growth right so whether it's um the economy or education or whatever everything that it goes to it's going to make sure that it it justifies its thinking but what i find really uh, also i I don't want to say troubling just an observation that this is also based in a fear that there is not enough there's not enough resources for for, for all of us so yeah. we've got to make sure that uh, we we yeah. set a criteria, right, for who who is um, who has a legitimate right uh, to access. Yeah. And, and and I think that also goes back once again, I think, uh, folks, tell yourself, keep reminding yourselves, 8.6, 8.6, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. 8.6 percent of the uh, population yeah. controls 86 percent of the wealth. And you said by what, 2030? By, 20, by
1: 2030, it's like 1% will have two-thirds of the wealth. Was there just a report I saw recently? Yeah, yeah.
0: So, I mean, uh, and even if it's off a little bit, right? It, right it's yeah. still—those th- yeah. are still terrifying numbers. Uh, and what does that say for the condition, not just of us here, because I think that's also part of the illusion, that we can somehow save ourselves from a greed that does not know borders. It's not constrained right. by a border. Uh, and— right. Which is in cooperation? Oh yeah, right. There's cooperation.
1: You know. Oh yeah, there's a lot of cooperation.
0: Yeah, uh, international cooperation. Uh, so, labor folks, um, just just folks in, in general. This is something that we should be really paying attention to. And I'll I'll end with this question. Do you remember? Um, uh, I used to go. I missed the last couple of years, but uh, International Workers' Day. Mm-hmm. So they have a nice, uh, they have a really nice, um, I guess you call it parade, you know, a yeah. rally right over on, yeah. I think it's on Halsted. Yeah. The, and, so the May
1: 1st, the usual yeah, yeah. one. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So um, I think things like that for me, as I was going year after year, I saw, I didn't see as many people out. Yeah. Right. So it was like a declining, you know, the, the attendance. So what I hope is... Things like that that we can see right here in Chicago, that you start to see, and wherever you are, that you start to see more people come out, uh, because that is a sign that we're paying attention. You know. No, so. uh,
1: absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I uh, I share that hope.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Jamie, we thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us, folks. You can read his piece uh, on the Baffler. That's uh, the Baffler. Dot com. Yeah, at
1: baffler.com.
0: Okay. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break and we'll, we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Slime on WCEV 1450 AM. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its north side location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at Syrian Community Network. Org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alamine, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. You can follow us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Find us at Radio Islam USA. And also make sure you subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get yours at. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. um, Easily found at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family. Uh, Today, like every day, seems to be a busy day. We want to start out um, uh, this segment by playing a clip from uh, an address given by CNN uh, contributor Mark Lamont Hill, uh, who spoke uh, at the United, United Nations earlier today
2: of black activists to Palestine and we saw the connections between the police in New York City who were being trained by Israeli soldiers and the and the type of policing we were experiencing in New York City. We began to see relationships of resistance and we began to build and struggle and organize together. That spirit of solidarity, a solidarity that is bound up not just in ideology but in action is the way out. So as we stand here on the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the tragic commemoration of the Nekbeh, we have an opportunity to not just offer solidarity in words but to commit to political action, grassroots action, local action, and international action that will give us what justice requires. And that is a free Palestine from the river to the sea. Thank you for your time.
0: So, uh, before we get going, uh, joining me, as always, the impressive one, Assistant Producer Ibrahim Baig. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam. Now, um, CNN, uh, I guess, after some pressure or some outrage at what was referred to, uh, some of the language, the "river to the sea" uh, statement, was referred to as a dog whistle. Decided to end his contract with Mark Lamont Hill. Did you hear anything in there that that you would think like, oh, he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have gone there?
3: No, I, I'm not familiar with the the term itself, the phrase from the river to the sea. I guess it's referring from the Jordan River to the uh, Mediterranean Sea yeah. which a lot of that territory is under Israeli control for so him to say that as a free palestine from the river to the sea people must have interpreted it as him saying that you know that all of this swath of land is going to be palestine and that you know israel won't be there or something like that um, i think it's a huge jump to make yeah uh, logically
0: but that's probably what led to the outrage do you think that it could also be a a reference to uh, some criticisms that have been made for non-Jewish uh, residents or citizens of Israel uh, in the, what would you say, unfair treatment that they have received? That it's also a nod to um, looking for peace, just period, just peace, period. Not necessarily... Uh, a usurpation or moving anybody out or anything like that but just saying that we want to address all issues that go against
3: peace yeah yeah, that's what he says he's referring to pretty plainly Uh, I'm reading parts of his Twitter feed right now yeah um, that's, that's basically what he's saying. Yeah. He's like, he says, okay, let me read this yeah. uh, from two hours ago. He says, I support Palestinian freedom. I support Palestinian self-determination. I am deeply critical of Israeli policy and practice. I do not support antisemitism, killing Jewish people, or any of the other things attributed to my speech. I have spent my life fighting these things. Uh, and he goes on, my reference to quote river to the sea was not a call to destroy anything or anyone. It was a call for justice, both in Israel and in the West Bank, Gaza. The speech very clearly and specifically said those things. No amount, no amount of debate will change what I actually said or what I meant. Hmm.
0: You know, there's a re, there's there's a serious uh, conflation of criticism of Israeli policies uh, and anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. Right? These are not. Uh, Mutually exclusive This is one of the most common complaints Is that when anyone
3: uh, Publicly and very vocally Criticizes Israeli policy Mm. And Israeli treatment of Palestinians That they are immediately Kind of lambasted and categorized Accused of being uh, Anti-Semitic And like everyone says, no, this is not true. This couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we're not against Judaism or Jewish people or anything like that. It's this country called Israel, which has certain policies, and we're criticizing those policies and we're criticizing their human rights record and their treatment of uh, people who are living next to them, mm-hmm. right?
0: And uh, definitely understand uh, the, the nekba that he that he referenced. Yeah. That is a tragic moment.
3: It's a true thing. It's not fiction. Right? Right. It really happens, and people really happen, and people are really are still suffering from the consequences of
0: it. Yeah, of, of being displaced, uh, of being, uh, of of not just them but their descendants, right? Their children and their grandchildren uh, being refugees uh, and not being given the right of return, uh, of of having a country which is, obviously, would say the United States closest ally um a a democratic nation the united states uh whose closest ally goes well i mean it, it, you know it, it's it's not a dem it's not a representation of democracy by any stretch of the imagination uh and because of that there is criticism uh and i appreciate i appreciate that he made this connection between he says uh he talked about the new york state uh the new york police officers that are is trained by israeli either military soldiers what have you uh, and the policing of uh black and brown people in new york and making a connection between the policing that palestinians are uh that they deal with there you know th- this connection he says it and there has to be a point of uh, recognition, but also solidarity to move beyond, uh, uh, move to a point to correct what we're looking at.
3: Yeah, I, I'm curious what exactly he was referring to. Was he referring to like stop and frisk or was he referring to kind of the strategy of cordoning people off into these uh, different districts? Or what I don't know exactly what he was referring to. Um, I haven't heard the, we haven't heard the spe- the full speech yet because this is yeah. all happening like right, right now, you right. know, as we speak in the past, like, Two hours or so. Um,
0: so, one other thing, though, before we jump off that, let yeah. me just give my my two cents. What it resonated with uh, with me because I felt like he was addressing this dismissal dismissal of humanity okay. uh, of the people that are policed. Yeah, and, and when you hear or when you see um, protesters being uh, shot or People, you know, young teens, you know, be, being killed, uh, Palestinians, and then you look uh, on our news and you see young black men unarmed killed by those who are, you know, policing them. I see a dismissal of humanity. I think that's what he was getting at. Of course, he could, yeah. you know, articulate uh, that sense. better, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but um, you, you about? To say I think
3: th- also mm-hmm. ties to stop and frisk as well, because yeah. in stop and frisk, you're looking at people as Almost like an object, as a number, as a problem, mm-hmm. rather than a human being with dignity who has certain sacred rights of not, you know, being presumed guilty, yeah, just for walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it ties into all
0: of that. Yeah, an agent of the the state that is in opposition, diametrical opposition to to you, to or to to me, right, or to the the Palestinian uh, young man or, or woman they are automatically seen as, as the enemy and they are treated as such. They're not treated that hold to serve and protect that doesn't apply to them. So yeah, the stop and frisk, the dismissal of humanity, I think these are things that, um, that are recognized and, and the, the bigger conversation is, and what he's pointing out is, how do you change it? How do you sensitize people who are trained to see you as outside the pale of humanity? How do you do that? right um what bothers me in in this instance also uh, just going back to the fact that the, all ties were cut with him because of a so-called dog whistle right whereas we just had we just had um a mississippi uh election for senator and this this woman was named maria uh, hyatt smith i think that's her name or okay. Something like that, uh, but but she made references a lynching reference, Yeah. right? That's not a dog whistle. That's that's a outright. It's pretty explicit. Yeah, yeah. outright, pretty explicit, especially given the history of Mississippi. Yeah, uh, but this is also somebody who got elected. Um, we have our our president who called himself a nationalist. Not a year, you know, two years after uh, Charlottesville. Right. Where you had these white nationalists show up um, screaming stuff, blood and soil. That wasn't a dog whistle. Once again, that's that's a nod to a particular way of thinking that nobody ran from. Uh, And there was nothing there was nothing productive. There was nothing uh, that, that he was saying that was that was inclusive. That was about us as a nation. What he's talking about, what Mark Lamont Hill mentioned here, had nothing to do with tearing anybody down i mean and it was it was really about the pre- preservation i think of 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 everyone but certainly coming to the defense of those who have been uh who, who themselves have been uh defenseless so we got a, a serious double standard that's going on here and
3: yes yeah, speaking, that's, that's speaking of double standard um as we mentioned, I think CNN. Did we mention the CNN? He was a CNN contributor, right? After all this just came out, CNN has now uh, terminated the contract mm. with him, with Mark Lamont Hill as a, as a commentator. I had heard his commentating on some of the sh- some of the clips, some of the segments. I, I liked him a lot, yeah, um, even before this. Um, but yeah, CNN has now terminated their relationship with him. Apparently. When we talk about double standard, here's the thing. People are pointing this out all over social media as we speak. Yeah. Uh, former Governor Rick Santorum. Mm-hmm. We know who Rick Santorum is. We remember yeah. Rick Santorum. I remember what I remember most about Rick Santorum um, is during the 2012 election cycle, The f- there was Republican candidates debating each other, right? Mm-hmm. The face that Rick Santorum would make Every time Ron Paul would get up and speak was this this fa- this face of complete like shock and bewilderment. It was, I want you to look this up if you get a chance, but anyway, yeah, uh, Rick Santorum is also a paid contributor for cNN mm. and when we look at some of the comments that he has said, this is what's going up on social media right now, some comments from Rick Santorum. Uh, About Palestine and Palestinians quote all the people all the people that live in the West Bank are Israelis they are not Palestinians there is no Palestinian this is Israeli land Hmm. history began in 48 right Um, Rick Santorum as far as we know has not been terminated and and he, he didn't say this today either this is an old statement right um so when we talk about double standard, yeah, that's certainly another thing that comes up. Here is a, an African-American, and a really brilliant man, Mark Lamont Hill, mm-hmm. um, making this comment, giving a speech in solidarity with the Palestinians. And so next thing you know, he's terminated from CNN. Why does Rick Santorum, as far as we know, is
0: still on board? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What it really shows is that there is a zero tolerance. For any criticism uh, there's a zero tolerance for trying to uh, trying to join hands or recognize the, uh, the, the injustices uh, that are taking place uh, in, in, in Israel and it's not an indictment of Judaism at all it has nothing to do it with the Judaism it has everything to do with the governmental structure it has everything to do with a, uh, a, a a political apparatus that has been described as a modern day apartheid. Uh, and it has everything to do with the stripping of the, the rights of people that were there prior to the creation of Israel. Right now, we can't. There's no going backwards. Right. There's no going, There's no undoing. What what has been done as far as the the creation of Israel, but we certainly we certainly must uh, say something and, and support those you know who point out that there is an injustice that is taking place for those people who are who are presently there who this this is their ancestral homeland, uh, but but they're they're disregarded and for I forgot his name that quickly because he means that just that that little to me uh, no Santorum. But uh, um, but for him to say make a comment like that, that just simply shows where the the levers of power lie, that he can say something like that and not have to not suffer any retribution, uh, not suffer any any real condemnation. But for Mark Lamont Hill to make a statement that that he made and for it to somehow turn into a uh, uh, anti-Semitic dog whistle. Which is absolutely ridiculous. This is simply, like I said, this is simply them just, uh, that mindset saying that there will be no criticism. Uh, no criticism uh, accepted, allowed, none whatsoever.
3: There's 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 a couple more th- factors at play here. Sure. One of them is um, the presence of, now, when, when we mention this, people... Uh, automatically, also, will jump to anti-Semitism and even like conspiracy theories, but mm-hmm. it, it it it's very difficult to deny this. There's books that have been written on this and so on with, about the Israel lobby. Yeah, um, there there's a there is a, a bit of machinery that's present um, when it comes to uh, defending. Israel, as far as like think tanks are concerned and the the power that they wield in some cases, Mm -hmm. um, the outlet called The Hill, a well-known journalism outlet, The Hill had an article about this very incident, and they are saying that, uh, quote, Hill's use of the phrase, the phrase that we talked about, sparked rapid criticism and outrage from a variety of sources, including the Anti-Defamation League and the National Council of Young Israel on Thursday. Mm. Um, so there are these organizations that immediately jump out to criticize and defame anyone who uh, tries to show solidarity with Palestinians. And there's another thing, a very big important factor here that also is mentioned in this article in The Hill is that he was Hill was apparently Uh, During his speech, which we haven't heard the full speech yet, like I said, because it's all happening like in real time right now, Um, Hill urged countries to boycott Israel in his speech at the UN. That is really um, something which is being overlooked here, and I believe when you use the term dog whistle to refer to this statement, Mm -hmm. um, it holds true in more than one way. I think it's that that statement is now becoming the focus or being made the focus rather than this uh important factor of him calling for a boycott boycott against Israel, the B D S movement yep. and the really the animosity that it in, inspires in some people, whether it be on college campuses or, or otherwise and people equating that movement with uh people equating it with anti Semitism once again. Yeah. So that movement is obviously Wielding some level of power, uh, com- you know, simply based on how people are reacting to it and and just the animosity that some people have towards it. So when he calls for a boy, he calls for a boycott against Israel in his speech. I'm assuming that this is really one of the um, major factors in in this whole controversy that's going on in CNN letting him go. Uh, I have to assume that rather than just—they're not making that the focus, but they're making this terminology the focus from the river to the sea. But
0: I think this boycott has a lot to do with it. You know what? I'm I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that analysis, uh, particularly because this idea of uh, the Trumpian uh, tactic of of distraction, not really dealing with the real issue. And and I can't really call it a Trumpian uh, tactic because he didn't invent it, right? That's just— I think that's just um manipulating the masses 101. You you point to something that people have been conditioned to feel a particular way or have a particular sensitivity about and you overlook the thing that really should be should be resonating with them on a uh, on an intellectual level. Um I go back again and say that the connections that he drew between uh between uh, African Americans and the, and the Palestinians with regard to policing yeah. are important um and he's not the only on one yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um but it's important on a number of uh fronts i like to turn it around and i just look at the 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 relationship that exists between uh the police and those two populations but to also look at the reaction that people have when those when when those um uh, when those actors are criticized, so whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement, which is uh, you know, a movement that has been about the, the lack of dignity and humanity afforded to blacks in response, you know, w- with regard to uh, interactions with police or the, the, the Palestinians pointing to how they are mistreated by Israeli defense forces. The response is the same. The response is, is never for either of those two actors to have to take any responsibility for, to, to you know, not that there's any credibility, any truth to those statements. It is simply how dare you even make the aspersion? How dare you even make this uh, claim that the police are acting improperly, you know, whether they're uh, defense forces or they their law, law enforcement here. It's saying that your claim has no basis simply because of who you are, not because of not because, you know, either uh, entity did, didn't uh, didn't do anything wrong. It's just you don't you don't like in court to say you don't have any standing. Right? You, you don't you don't have the standing. You don't have the, uh, the the humanness to be able to stand up and say anything that should be listened to. So I think that's that's another really important point here. The criticism itself, I go back to that, the criticism itself, it's got to be brushed off. So if he's calling for a boycott, think how Birmingham, how Birmingham, the city of Birmingham uh, felt when the the, the Birmingham, the bus boycott was taking place and they were economically crippled and forced into some semblance of, um, you know, of effectuated uh, civility, Right. Their hearts didn't change. They just got hit in the pockets. Yeah. So we, we're in, we're in a, he's making a similar call with many others. But, yeah, CNN, they, they disappointed in you guys. Disappointed in you guys. You got to you gotta be able to take the criticism. You know, you got to be able to take it. Okay. Uh, we thank you all for joining us. And we thank our engineers over at WCEV. Uh, I'm your host, Tariq El-Amin, uh, joined by the impressive one. Ibrahim Beg, and we thank our sponsors, Zakat Foundation. Thank you very much. Our executive producers, Abdul Malik Mujahid, and we remind you that the views expressed by the host and/or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.